Over the last couple years with this podcast, we've tried to dig into some truths of learning. And something we know for sure is that the type of actions that lead to the best growth, they all involve uncertainty, change, and struggle. Now, the tough thing about uncertainty, change, and struggle is that those type of environments, yes, they help us grow, but they also create discomfort. So one big idea about learning that doesn't get enough attention is to become a better learner, we need to be willing to feel uncomfortable. But there's a problem here. The way we think and talk about discomfort is so wrong. Now, maybe some of you are looking at the title of this episode like, wow, these guys are going to talk about emotions and feeling, and this is going to be an episode of fluff and uh, fake positivity. That couldn't be farther from the truth. This is one of our best episodes. We're going to dig deep into the science, and we actually have two of the best guests on the planet to teach us how this research can help us all become better learners, but honestly, better people. We have Susan David, who's a psychologist at Harvard Medical School, and then we have Mark Brackett, who's a professor at Yale and the director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. They've each published fantastic books that have helped us a ton as we've crafted this episode. I don't know what else we could say to hype you up, but this one's going to be a banger. Welcome to the Learner Lab Podcast. I'm Trevor Reagan. I'm Alex Belser. Each week, we're going to explore a topic to help us become better learners. If you're interested in more, you could check out thelearnerlab.com for videos, articles, and more pods. Let's go. Okay, so we established that when we do things that involve uncertainty, change, and struggle, we feel discomfort. We feel those emotions. The big problem here, starting at the top, is that we think that those tough emotions are bad. I think one of the things that most comes to mind when I think about traditional ways we think about emotions is firstly that some emotions are good and some emotions are bad. That's Susan David from Harvard Medical School. So the idea that, for instance, happiness and joy are good emotions and that anger is a destructive emotion, it's a bad emotion or that even sadness or frustration are so-called bad emotions. And then I think another narrative in society is that emotions should be controlled. This idea that, you know, we are two steps away from an emotional hijack. And therefore, when emotions feel really intense, they need to be controlled. So this idea that the good and bad emotions and that the so-called bad emotions should be controlled are actually just not helpful. Now, this perception can come from many different sources. They can come from more internal sources or external ones. And here's Mark Brackett from Yale to tell us more about that. You know, because there wasn't a term or a concept called emotional intelligence, right, until recently, people just, you know, you'd have these strong emotions and then you would oftentimes make poor decisions as a result of them. So we had this negative view for decades, for centuries, you know, that emotions derail you from achieving your goals as opposed to support you. I think the common like big signals were being sent about our tough emotions. One end of the spectrum is sort of like the toughen up, don't feel, don't show emotion approach. But then on the other end of the spectrum is this, we always need to be happy. We always need to be positive. Now, those might seem like different messages, but if you get to the core, they're kind of saying the same thing. 
feeling bad is bad. When I was younger and I experienced the death of my father at a young age, people would say to me, you know, you're so strong, you'll be okay, everything happens for a reason. And I landed up experiencing this as what I described as the tyranny of positivity. This idea that on the surface of it, saying, oh, let's be positive sounds great. But what is it actually doing? It's perpetuating denial. It's perpetuating this incapacity for us as individuals to be authentically with our experience, which sometimes is difficult because life is fragile and learning can be tough. And, you know, we all have our hearts broken or we become ill. And so we need as human beings to develop the skills to help us deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. There are these narratives that become perpetuated over time. So for instance, we have in culture, we have what uh, Paul Ekman called display rules. And the display rules are often these unspoken rules about what emotions it's okay to feel or not feel. And of course, we start seeing the same in our schools and in society. When a child is angry, we might say, you know, go to your room and come out when you've got a smile on your face or we don't do anger here, or even as parents, sometimes with really good intentions, if our child comes home from school and says, you know, mommy, no one would play with me today, it feels really tough for us to see our child in that place. And so what we often do is we'll jump in and we'll say, oh, don't worry, you know, I'll play with you. Let's go bake cupcakes. Let's do this. Let's do that. But what we're signaling to the child unintentionally is that sadness is not a good emotion that they need to feel happy and that they, they should do things to avoid that feeling of sadness. And actually what this does in children is it lowers their resilience over time and it lowers their capacity to learn and to recognize really important things about emotions. You know that emotions pass, that emotions aren't to be feared that when you grow and you challenged and you're learning, often that feels uncomfortable, but you can deal with that discomfort. These are really powerful things for all of us as human beings. I love that example of oftentimes we mean well, but these subtle things that we do when the people around us are in pain or we are feeling pain are really sending the signal how you're feeling isn't good. So like little things like when we tell people to shake it off, toughen up or get out of your head or if we're working with someone like a seventh grader who just went through a breakup and it's easy for us as an adult with some perspective to say look it's really no big deal you're a seventh grader this is like not even going to be a speed bump in the scheme of your life and that's easy for us to say but the truth is they are in pain if you scan their brain it would look the same as our brain would look when we were going through a breakup. And to try to minimize that by saying it's no big deal, that's painting the wrong picture. Now, it's important to remember that these subtle signals that we're sending are often coming from a well-meaning place. Like, we are trying to help the people that we care about when we do this. We're just unintentionally sending these signals. Right, and it's because we're working off the same uh, perception that it's not good to feel like this. And so when someone around us is feeling like that, obviously we want to help. 
This is creating this big perception. Uh, Miriam Greenspan in her amazing book, uh, Healing Through Dark Emotion, she calls it emotion phobia. That's a really good way to describe this. We think of pain, we think of these tough emotions as something to be avoided, that there is something that we shouldn't feel. So we're armed with this perception that pain, that tough emotions are a negative thing, that they're bad. What happens is because we're humans, because we are living our life, of course we face challenges and setbacks and we make mistakes. We do things that cause pain. And when those things happen, we're bound to feel. But then we have this narrative in our head that feeling is bad, that we shouldn't feel pain. And so this causes all sorts of problems. And so what this often leads to from a you know, societal perspective is that as human beings, it can then become very difficult for us to come clean, if you like, with our emotions. We can maybe feel emotions like boredom or frustration, anger, the ones that I mentioned, and then we start second guessing ourselves, you know, maybe I shouldn't feel this. I don't have it so bad compared to other people. Um, we become self-punishing. We judge ourselves for having these difficult emotions. There's different types of um, emotions that I talk about. You know, type one emotions are the clean, clear experience of the emotion. I'm unhappy. I'm unsad. I feel anxious. You know, I'm grieving. And that's just the emotion. That is what it is. Type two is when we start having emotions about our emotions. I'm unhappy about the fact that I'm unhappy. I'm sad and I shouldn't feel sad because other people have got it worse. And type two emotions are when we really start getting ourselves into trouble. We start developing this internal struggle that keeps us stuck and that stops us from being able to learn in our lives because we're so busy hustling with ourselves and with our emotions and what we're allowed to feel or not allowed to feel that we aren't facing into the reality or gaining new skills or connecting. So what this shows us is that our traditional narrative of emotions tells us that they're a bad thing, that when we feel bad, that is a bad thing. So whenever we feel these emotions, we try to get rid of it in whichever way that we can. And that usually ends up hurting us in the long run. So what I found in my work is that there's uh, typically two ways that people deal with tough emotions. Uh, the first is that we bottle them. We push them aside. And so it's almost like imagine you're carrying a really, really heavy load of books and you're carrying them with your arms outstretched because you just don't want them to come close to you. And bottling emotions is exactly that. It's basically pushing emotions aside. It's judging them, rationalizing them. I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. Um, only allowing those emotions that are seen as legitimate. And what's really interesting is when you look at people who bottle their emotions as a tendency. And I use that word tendency specifically because if you, for instance, are going in for a job interview and you've had a really bad morning, pushing your emotions aside for that job interview is not going to you know, be a terrible thing to do. In fact, it's probably going to be the right thing to do. What I mean by tendency is when we have this tendency to judge our difficult emotions as bad and therefore we bottle them, what we know is it's actually associated with lower levels of well-being, high levels of depression and anxiety, um, lower effectiveness in relationships because it feels to other people like you aren't able to connect with them in a real authentic way. 
And we know that there's a poorer impact even in the workplace in terms of managerial outcomes and so on. And so um, bottling emotions is this idea that we push them aside and we often do them because we think that they're bad and we think that pushing them aside is a good thing. Um, but there's this wonderful effect in psychology and the effect is called amplification. And amplification is this idea, and again, I talk about this very briefly in my TED talk, imagine you've got a delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator. The more you try not to think about it, the greater its hold on you. So we know when people push aside difficult emotions, that kind of internal pain doesn't just go away, it tends to actually come back and it tends to become suffocating. You tend, when you try to push aside these difficult emotions, have an amplification or even what turns out to be emotional leakage. You know, I'm upset with my brother, but I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm going to push it aside. I'm not going to think about it. And then you have it all out over the Thanksgiving table and you, you know, wish that you hadn't said anything. So you've got this leakage that happens. So the first is this bottling. The second is brooding. What we're doing with brooding, it looks very different. What we're doing is we are so focused on sitting in those emotions, thinking about them, ruminating, dwelling. It's almost like that box of books or the pile of books is so close to our chest that we have to do everything white knuckled to be with it. And what does that mean? It means that we can't see the other. We can't love our child and be present. Uh, we are often not able to be in our lives because we are so busy being in our minds. And so again, this bottling of emotions, um, sorry, this brooding of emotions is associated with the lower levels of well-being and all the other things that I mentioned previously, they look so different. And of course, the narrative of happiness can perpetuate both of these because it's this idea that either I shouldn't experience the tough emotions, I'm going to push them aside, or oh my goodness, I'm experiencing these tough emotions. What does this mean about me? This is terrible. And so we start getting into the circular thinking. So that, that's all, you know, going to the kind of maladaptive, you know, self-destructive strategies, you know, whether it be you know, too much alcohol, denial, suppression, repression, you know, acting out, screaming, overeating, you know, the list goes on. And by the way, you don't need to even get a bachelor's degree to become an expert, right? You know, in these strategies, you know, we learn them just by observing our families and the world around us because they're a lot easier. Right. Right. It's a lot easier to use these, you know, mostly ineffective strategies. A good way to think about these maladaptive strategies, like think of them as painkillers. These are our strategies to stop feeling because once again, we think it's, we're doing something wrong, so we need to get rid of it. Other things that we could do, uh, we can offload our pain. So we could do this through lashing out on someone else. Alex, have you ever had like a bad day and then you go home and lash out on someone who had nothing to do with that day? More than I care to admit. <laughs> that's human nature. That's if I hurt, you should too. Whop, have some of that. So that's a way we can offload our pain on others. Another thing we could do is blame. Uh, I fail my math test. I feel some emotion about that. Who could I blame it on? The teacher. Yeah. And as soon as I blame it on the teacher, oh, I feel much better. So these are all strategies to get rid of pain. One big one that Brene Brown talks about a lot, she calls hiding, which is we stop doing the thing that causes the pain. So I apply to get a new job. 
I go through the interview process, I get rejected. That causes pain. And obviously it's not fun to feel this. And so I find ways to hide from it. I stop applying for jobs. This could also happen during a basketball game. I miss a few three pointers. I'm feeling a certain way about that. I could stop shooting. So as you can see, there's like an endless list of actions and behaviors that are really stemming from this approach to stop feeling bad. Well, the problems are A, you know, they're damaging to your health and well-being. B, you know, they're damaging to your relationships because it's, you know, it's really hard to be in a good relationship with someone who is in denial, yelling, screaming, drinking too much alcohol, blaming. Um, and third, um, you know, we, we asked about learning, is that, you know, when our brains are preoccupied with defending and denying and repressing and suppressing, they're not available for learning. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, I was a C and D student, you know, as a kid and, you know, people were like, well, how'd you become a professor at Yale? And it's, you know, I was a smart kid and I am smart, but I was not able to use my smarts because my emotion system took over and I didn't have good strategies. I used all those maladaptive ones. Yeah. You know, I overate or I starved myself. I cried in my room alone. I yelled and screamed and threw things. And, but I didn't know when there was no, I, I no emotion coach. <laughs> all right, so we just spent a lot of time talking about the problems that these behaviors can create in our lives. And we could go on for longer. There are tons of different ways that this impacts our lives. But the big message here is that when we think it's bad to feel bad, we try to avoid those emotions. And when we do that, it robs us of growth. Yeah, it robs us of growth. And in many scenarios, it actually makes the pain worse. Like that's the ampli- amplification part. Right. And like big picture, if if I'm going out of my way to stop feeling, I'm probably either going to avoid the situation itself or do all these negative actions and behaviors that rob me of opportunities to grow. And we've all done these things. We're not shaming anyone, but it's something to be aware of. And I want to circle back to what you said at the start just, just then. They're all fueled by this flawed assumption that feeling bad is bad. Like that's kind of the root cause of all these things that we've all done before. And that shows us how to fix it. I think once we're exposed to a lot of these ideas, the surface level approach is to start changing our actions. Tell ourselves, don't deny, don't suppress, don't bottle, and don't brood. But the best way to go about this is to change that core assumption that emotions are bad. What I talk about in my work on emotional agility is that there is, again, no good or bad emotion or thought. You know, we have around 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day and many more thousands course through our minds. Thoughts about, you know, am I good enough? Uh, What am I going to have for dinner? Am I overweight? I need to get a new cell phone. You know, all the things that go on for us. And there's no thought or emotion that is inherently good or bad. Our thoughts and emotions are part of our evolutionary processing um, mechanisms that allow us to be safe and adept in the world. They've literally evolved our thoughts, for instance, to perceive threat and to protect us. So there's nothing wrong with any of these. So what do we need to do I've got a couple of things that, you know, and I talk about this very practically in my work, but the first thing that I would suggest is to 
see as far as possible if you can just do away with this idea that there's good or bad, that if you can just face into your experience in a way that's compassionate, you know, I'm doing the best I can here. It is what it is. And, you know, think about this as the language that I often use is this idea of gentle acceptance. Gentle acceptance is not the same as passive resignation. Oh, my goodness, things are terrible. There's nothing I can do. Gentle acceptance is literally about gently and compassionately saying it is what it is. The situation is tough. I am bored. I feel unseen in my work. This relationship isn't working out. Whatever that thing is, gentle acceptance is profound. And what gentle acceptance looks like in a pragmatic way is imagine if you went outside and it was raining and gentle acceptance is gee, it's raining. But often we don't do gentle acceptance. Often we say, it's raining and I'm not sure why it's raining. Why does it always rain when I want to go outside? It's ridiculous that every time I, you know, so we start doing this whole. So the first thing we need to do with our thoughts and our emotions is gentle acceptance. And gentle acceptance comes from the recognition that we are big enough and capacious enough as human beings and beautiful enough to experience all of our emotions there's no singular emotion that shouldn't be there and so when we come into the space with ourselves this ability to see ourselves and be with ourselves that is the first and most powerful step and then there are others that are really practical that i can speak to but i, I think it's difficult to get to that space um, where you're implementing strategies without first being in the space of it is what it is. Mm -hmm. We know that acceptance is the prerequisite to change. It's only when you face into the reality of your experience that you're even then able to say, well, what do I need to do next? We know, you know, if a city is under bombardment, it's very difficult for that city to be rebuilt while it's still being bombarded. And so while we are continuing to bombard ourselves with why we shouldn't feel or judge ourselves, then it's difficult to move forward. I guess like the big fix here before we get into the weeds is just change the perception. Emotions are not good or bad. They just are. Now, of course, some are more fun to feel than others, but they're not good or bad. There are three big benefits to changing this core assumption. First, we're less likely to get caught up in that type two spiral of shaming ourselves for feeling. We're likely to avoid these pain killing actions that we're trying to like use to stop feeling. And I think we become better learners in situations where we do feel a bit of pain and discomfort. All three wins that help pretty much anyone. Emotions are signals. They are important information. They can actually be useful. Mm -hmm. um, but that means you have to be skilled with them. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we've not had an emotion education. So now a lot of us are probably wondering, how do we become more skilled with emotions? And both Susan and Mark have written incredible books that are packed full with strategies to do this. Susan's book is called Emotional Agility, and Mark's book is called Permission to Feel. Everyone should go out and buy their books and read them because they're incredible. So obviously we can't cover all of their tactics from the two books in a podcast, but what we want to look at is 
kind of three big pillars of overlap that would help just the average person become more emotionally skilled. Part one, we need to feel. Part two, label. Part three, get curious. Let's jump in. It took me a while to come up with the title of my book. Um, you know, a lot of people were saying, just call it emotional intelligence, you know, because that's the center that I direct. And I decided that there's a step before developing the skills of emotional intelligence, which is giving ourselves and everyone we love and know, right, the permission to feel. And so that's the deeper reason, which is that we need to feel like we can be our full feeling selves. And that doesn't happen alone. It really happens in relationship. You know, we have to give ourselves the permission to have all feelings and not judge them, right? There's no such thing as a bad feeling or a weak feeling. Um, feelings are feelings, period. Psychological health is about wholeness. It's about integration. It's about saying, you know, this tough thing happened to me or is happening to me. And I'm processing it and I'm learning from it. I didn't wish this thing on myself, but now that I'm dealing with it, I'm developing a sense of understanding around it. You know, there's this beautiful saying, a human being can never step into the same river twice. And it's because as human beings, the context changes, our lives change, and we change. And so it's only when we open to the difficult emotions that come as part and parcel with being human that we are able to then adapt to that change. So the big idea, idea here is in order to learn or, or grow from a situation, we need to be willing to feel. Mark says you got to feel it to heal it. But what's really important is that our emotions are data. They are not directives. Just because I feel guilty as a parent doesn't mean I'm a terrible parent. Just because I feel bored in my job doesn't mean I need to now give notice right now. So our emotions are data, not directives. So we want to be able to show up to our emotions with compassion and curiosity, but not let those emotions call the shots. And so what this means is getting a healthy distance between us and our emotions. So often what we do is we say things like, you know, I am sad. I am angry. You know, I am being undermined. Um, I am not good enough. So we treat our emotions, our thoughts, and our stories. We, we use this language of I am. If you think about it, when you say something like I am, what it's basically implying is that all of you, 100% of you, is that emotion. In other words, you are defined singularly by that emotion. But you aren't your emotion. You aren't 100% sad. You've got your values, your intentions, your love, your dreams, your hopes. There's a whole lot of stuff that's there that is not sad. And so we need to actually start giving space to those things. You know, there's that beautiful idea, and I speak about this a bit in my book, which is, you know, Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi death camps, describes this incredibly profound idea between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. When we hooked, when we in agile, there's no space between stimulus and response. Um, so how do we start creating that space? Well, one of the first ways is to see if you can, when you are hooked, move away from this 
language of I am sad. So it's very simple and very subtle, but incredibly powerful. What you're doing here is instead of I am sad, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing the urge to shut down in the meeting. I'm noticing that this is my I'm not good enough story. What we're doing here is we are noticing our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories for what they are. They're thoughts, they're emotions, they're stories. They're not facts. They're not directives. And so if you use this, you know, very simple um, noticing of the phenomenon that we're experiencing, what you do is you start creating critical space between you and the emotion so that you can make choices. So this, this is all super effective. We need to be willing to feel in order to heal, in order to grow. And we don't want to get consumed with the feeling. We want to create some distance. But our job isn't done. We need to get to step two, which is trying to understand, well, what is it that I'm actually feeling? You want to get specific. Like, am I angry? Am I peeved? Am I enraged? Am I down? Am I disappointed? Am I devastated? Am I hopeless? Am I happy or am I ecstatic? Am I calm or am I content or am I tranquil? Like, get really granular. And the reason why that's important is that that'll help us figure out the strategy that will best support us. Mm -hmm. And I think people have not really made that connection, this labeling to regulating pathway, mm -hmm. because, you know, if I'm just, you know, you can't just, like the best example I have is with my students here. They all say they're stressed. Every student says I'm stressed and the world says they're stressed. I thought, they could be more specific. So I had them write essays and to go deep into their feelings of stress. And what I learned was the number one feeling actually among students where I work was envy, mm. not stressed. And so when they went to the counseling center because of their anxiety and stress, which was really envy, they were told to do mindfulness exercises, which by the way are fine, to do you know, yoga classes. And I said, like, but how is downward dog going to resolve their envy? Right. You know, I like yoga. I'm a, I really love it. But like, if I'm having serious cognitive issues, you know, challenges, which is like, everybody's smarter than I am. Everyone's better than I am. Everyone's going to be more successful than I am. Downward dog is not going to get rid of it. Right. You know? And so you've got to learn how to restructure your thinking. So every emotion has a different way of, you have a different way of strategizing with every feeling. Sure. You know, that, that label helps us make meaning out of it. But until we get to that granularity, it's going to be really hard to know what to do with it. Very often we use very big labels to describe what it is we're feeling. I am stressed. But there's a world of difference between stress and disappointment or stress and anxiety or stress and I'm feeling unseen right now. Or stress and I'm exhausted when we move away from this very diffuse label of our emotions and instead say, this is disappointment, this is exhaustion, what it does is incredibly powerful. Just labeling emotions accurately helps us to understand the cause of the emotion and what scientists call the readiness potential in our brains, the part of us that starts to activate our I should go have a nice long walk because that's what I really need right now. Or gee, I should get my CV together. Or I need to have this really tough conversation with my manager because this is how I'm feeling. When we label our emotions accurately, it starts to activate this readiness potential in our brains. And that starts to allow us 
to move forward in ways that are concrete and values connected. All right, so we're feeling our emotions, we're labeling them, trying to figure out what we're actually feeling, but now we need to get curious about our emotions. So the emotion scientist is open to feelings and emotions, you know, curious, investigates, um, wants to get specific and precise, um, has what we call um, a growth mindset. And so that's kind of that mindset of, you know, growth. I can, I can master this. I can get better at this. Now the emotion judge is basically like emotions are error. Emotions are noise. Um, critical of emotion. Close emotions make you weak. Um, and also, you know, they have more of a fixed mindset like my father did. So, you know, that fixed mindset, you know, is basically saying, this is who I am and I'm not willing to change. Obviously, we've all slipped into judge mode where we see everything as black and white, guilty, innocent, good, bad. And we're really judging the way we feel. Now, the goal is to bring more curiosity to the table, to be the scientist. Why did this happen? What am I actually feeling? What might be the root cause of this feeling? When we start to ask questions like that, we're obviously going to learn more from the situation and the pain that we feel. And that comes not from the place of pushing aside difficult emotions that comes from the place of compassion with ourselves it comes from the place of courage because sometimes we needed to face into experiences that are really difficult or situations that we know aren't going in the way that we wanted and it also comes from the place of curiosity you know what is my emotion telling me here i've you know for instance never met Someone in the workplace who's bored, you know, boredom might be experiences, oh, this is a bad emotion. But what is boredom signaling? Boredom is signaling that you value learning and growth and that you aren't getting enough of it right now. If you, you know, a guilty parent, what is that guilt signaling? The guilt is very often signaling a value and that value is the value of I need connectedness with my children and I don't have enough of it. So really what I do in my work is I talk about this idea that emotional agility, it's not just about bearing these difficult emotions. It's actually about recognizing that these emotions are very often gifts. You know, what do they bring with them? They bring with them signposts of the things that we value and we care about. And that is the cornerstone of learning. That is the cornerstone of adaptability. If you say to yourself, what are my values that are being signaled right now that are either being underrepresented in my life or that feel of kilter and how can I make changes that allow me to connect more with those things that are important. So to recap those three steps we talked about in terms of becoming emotionally skilled, we need to develop the skills of feeling our emotions, labeling what our emotions actually are, and getting curious with them. And these are all things that would benefit everyone. Everyone needs to learn these ruler skills, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a coach, whether you are um, a cafeteria worker, a custodian, a teacher, a lawyer, a boxer, doesn't matter, is you're going to have better health and better well-being, 
You're going to have better relationships, make better decisions. You're going to be more creative, um, perform better. When you recognize your own and others' emotions, when you understand what makes you feel and what makes other people feel the way they do, when you have those labels to uh, precisely uh, articulate your feelings, when you are comfortable and know how and when to express all emotions, and when you have the strategies to regulate them effectively. So far, we've been looking at sort of the battle between our ears and how as an individual, we can become more emotionally skilled. But this works on the other side of the fence as well. A lot of the people listening to this podcast, we find ourselves working in teams, we're in leadership roles, and we need to understand how to apply these skills to others. Both Susan and Mark spend a lot of time working with incredible organizations, especially with people in leadership roles. So we asked them about some do's and don'ts. Don't label feelings for people. Mm. Don't think, don't be the knower, be the learner. Um, don't be um, someone who attributes emotions based on what you see in behavior. Like I may come in and scream as a, as a student, right? Or as a, you know, a sports player, you know, Whoever it is, if I work for you or from your student, I make fun. I hate you. I'm, 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 I'm out of here. And then you start, you get triggered by that. And you're like, well, who do you think you are talking about that? Well, you better calm down. Mm -hmm. You have no clue of what the story is behind that, that behavior. Mm -hmm. And you may, you know, automatically say, oh, he's pissed or he's angry. Mm -hmm. And it might be shame or fear or something right. else. So you've got to ask the right questions to get to know the feeling so that then you can support. Right. So I think that's the critical, this piece about behavior does not equal emotion. Be careful about projecting your own issues onto other people. Don't attribute emotions. Don't label for people. Be the emotion scientist who is a curious explorer, who's in learning mode, who is in support mode. Um, and then importantly, you've got to develop the skills yourself. You've got to be a role model. You know, Think about it, if you can't regulate well, it's going to be hard to help other people regulate well, right? You've got to demonstrate that you can deal with your own feelings. Um, Cause it starts with being able to self-regulate as a leader or a coach to then helping to co-regulate with the other person to then supporting people in regulating on their own. I use this word in my TED talk and I just love it, which is the word sawabona. And sawabona is a Zulu word that you hear every day on the streets in South Africa, which is where I was born. And Sawabona literally translated means, I see you, and by seeing you, I bring you into being. And it's so beautiful because often when people are experiencing tough emotions, we, with good intentions, try to jump in and fix them. You know, don't worry, I'll bake cupcakes with you. Or the person says, I'm worried my presentation won't go well. Oh, you'll be fine. So Sawabona is, I think, one of the most powerful ways that we can be with other people in the world. And that it's only when we are really able to see others and see ourselves that we can move forward in a way that is whole in a world that, after all, is fragile and simultaneously beautiful. So imagine if a child comes home from school and says, you know, mommy, uh, Jack wouldn't play with me today. Jack didn't invite me to his birthday party. Now I'm not going to invite him. What you can see is there's no space between stimulus and response there. The person's feeling really upset and now they're acting on that upset. Now I'm not going to invite him to my birthday party. So our automatic response might be, well, you've got to invite him because you've invited everyone else. You can't just not invite one person. Mm 
but actually the child's in pain. So if we can sow a bona, if we can instead show up to the fact that this child is in pain and we can say to the child, that's tough. Like that is, I can see that you feel rejected. You are in pain and we really showing up to that person's experience. That is so incredible for a child or for anyone else to have that, that feeling of being in a space where they're seen rather than trying to be fixed. Whoa, that deserves a pause. We need to let that one simmer for a bit. So many times when we're working with others, we try to fix them immediately because we mean well, but the goal should be to help them feel seen. You can then say to the child, um, you know, this thing that you're saying is anger. It sounds like, it sounds like there's a, part of that that's actually like really sad here this is a really sad experience what you're doing is you're helping the person to label their emotion in the way that we described earlier and then we're doing something when we connect with the one to which is a conversation we don't often have with people which is you know if someone comes and says i'm really angry because jack didn't invite me to his birthday party and i'm not going to invite him you know what is that telling us it's telling us that there's a signpost to that child, that that child cares about friendship, that that child cares about what being a friend looks like. So you can start having conversations with the child about, it sounds like friendship is really important to you. You know, what does being a good friend look like? What kind of actions make you a good versus not good friend? So what you're doing is you're not jumping in with the, you have to do something you're starting to do something far more powerful, which is connect with that person's sense of who they are. This is the conversation that builds character and values. This is the conversation that in two years' time, the child reflects back and says, friendship is important to me. I want to be, you know, this is the long game that we're taking and, and the short game. So if we call back to one of the examples we gave at the start, this we're working with a seventh grader who went through a breakup, rather than just telling them it's no big deal, think of how we could improve that conversation now we're equipped with these tools. Maybe it's just a conversation about like, yeah, how you feel right now is real and it's tough. And that's how people feel when they experience loss like this. It's not because you're doing something wrong. It's not because you're weak. It's because you're a human. Now think about the power of that conversation and compare it against the approach of, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And the other thing that having that conversation does is it signals to them that it's okay to feel those emotions, that those emotions are not necessarily bad. Right. And the goal isn't to, to minimize them or, or try to find a way out of them. It's to just feel them and understand that it's, it's normal. I'm a human. This is how we feel when tough things happen. And I think that's so important. Now, the truth with a lot of this stuff is, depending on what we're going through, this could take a different amount of time. Sometimes this could play out over the course of a few months or weeks or even minutes. The goal is, like Susan said, is creating that space to stop and acknowledge what we're feeling and get curious. And I think it's beneficial in big and small ways. This kind of goes back to a lesson that we've touched on a lot in our podcast. It's usually best to work with our nature than against it, rather than trying to stop feeling, which is really a, 
a losing battle that we've all tried to fight. We need to learn to accept these feelings. And I think that is such an important thing. If you take one thing from this podcast, it's there are no good and bad. It's okay to feel pain. Treat this as a skill. This is, we keep calling it emotionally skilled. We all need more reps doing this, but this is a fantastic framework. Um, Please check out Permission to Feel and Emotional Agility if you can. Also, a fantastic place to work through a lot of this is with a professional. I think going to therapy has been one of the most powerful experiences of my life. If you can, I would highly recommend that. So this isn't a replacement to therapy or anything like that. This is just helping us get a little more information about a topic that deserves more attention. Again, want to give a huge thanks to Susan and Mark. We'll put some links to their books and also to Susan's new podcast, Checking In, and to the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, which Mark directs.